0: Amen, it is. I I wanna say a word of appreciation. I look around and it seems like our crowds are getting larger and larger and we're grateful for that. Thank you for your faithfulness. And uh, you know, for those who are watching online concerned about maybe getting, not be able to social distance when you come to church, let me tell you, we got a big sanctuary here and uh, we've got room for you and we encourage you. If it's possible for you to be here, uh, we want you to be here. It's always good to be with God's people in God's house. Find your Bible, open it to the book of James chapter 5. As you know, uh, before we had a brief interlude, an interruption for several weeks where I felt like God was leading me a different direction uh, as we came and regathered back together. About uh, four or five weeks ago, we were in the book of James. And I want to return there today Uh, because it is a wonderful book. It always speaks to our heart. We know how practical it can be and the clarity it uh, has, which endears it to us and really makes it one of the most beloved books in all the Bible. So even though it's not a deep theological book, it does address some theology, but indeed its practicality is always straightforward, concise, and clear. But the mega theme of the book, as you remember, is faith without works is dead. And James calling us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So in five short chapters, we learn about a lot of topics. We learn about trials. We learn about temptation. We learn about prayer and partiality and pride and presumptuousness. And and then a whole chapter really on how we must guard our speech and the words that we use. And he talks to us throughout these chapters about what authentic faith looks like. But now we come to chapter 5, and James brings up a topic that he touched on and addressed in chapter 2 when he spoke about judging. However, in chapter 2, it was about individuals in the church who were judging people who came into the church, and the person who came and looked like he might be a little affluent or was dressed uh, in a proper way and and, uh, had all the trappings of money, they seated him in a better spot than someone who appeared to be poor. And James says, this simply cannot happen. But now he's not talking about us judging others. He's talking about God who is our judge, and that God one day is coming to judge. And so we certainly understand that our God is a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a, he, he's a merciful God, but the Bible tells us as well He's a just God. Isaiah 61, 8 says, for the Lord loves justice. He says, I hate robbery and wrong, and I will faithfully give them their recompense. So I want you to look uh, beginning in verse 1, chapter 5. I'm going to read the text, 12 verses. I'm going to move through the text rather quickly, but I want you to see some principles that we can extract from this wonderful scripture that James leaves us here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have corrupted, your garments are moth-eating, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Boy, there's a picture, isn't it? You will heap up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Saboth. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. you fanned fattened your days for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You hear me today, church? The coming of the Lord is at hand. So do not grumble against one another, brethren, unless you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard the perseverance of Job, and you've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Above all, brothers, do not swear by either heaven and earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into, here's the word, judgment pray with me today father it's so good to be in your house with your people to hear your word proclaimed once again we pray oh god that first you'd fill me with your spirit and speak through me you know as we gather today lord we come very cognizant of the uh, our own nation needing to be lifted up these have been perilous times and lord we just pray that there would be a sense of returning to you and that we would really build this nation and rebuild this nation on things that have been precious to us over the years, moral right and wrong. And Lord, help us to walk in your ways. We pray for our city today as there's been turmoil, not just in the nation, but in our city. I think about the tragic uh, shootings this week, a couple of policemen who were uh, shot and and those that were in, in, in harm's way throughout the week, Lord, we're, we're, we're just aware of it, and we want to pray about those things. But Lord, we pray for our church as well as this interim time, and we look forward in anticipation to who you have to come, and we just pray in regard to those things. But Lord, I pray, pray collectively for those who are here today. We all come with heaviness of heart and needs in our life, and we bear burdens but, Lord, I pray that in a transaction of faith, we could lay them at your feet today. And I pray for those who are without work. And I know many have lost their jobs during this time of COVID-19. And, Lord, they need help. I pray for them that they could find a right job. And, Lord, I pray that even though maybe our faith has been fractured and our hope has been hampered, I pray, O oh Lord, that we would return to you with all of our heart and soul. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I notice in this text. Uh, First, we see James giving what I'm calling a warning. This matter of judgment, James addresses, first is to those who are privileged and wealthy and have hoarded their riches and their garments uh, and and they have gained it by their wealth. And he's speaking against these things. He said, pretty soon you're going to reap what you've sown. Misery is going to come upon you because God has given or paid attention to how exactly you have mistreated and refused to pay an equitable wage to those who are laboring for you. So he gives us these two warnings that I I see beginning in verse two and three about the futility of riches. In the first century, obviously there's no stock investments, there's no certificate of deposits, there's no loaning institutions. So wealth was measured in three things that he mentions here, in grain, one's garments, how one dresses, and that are gold or silver. So this declaration of futility, James declares, here's what's going to happen one day. Your grain will rot, your garments will be moth-eating, eaten and your silver and gold will be corroded. And a matter of fact, they're going to stand as witnesses against you for all that you've hoarded, all that you corruptly gained by cheating your workers. And there one day will take the witness stand against you. And here we read who, uh, who's taken advantage of these employees. They refuse to pay them the proper wages, and now they're found out, and what has driven this sordid behavior will soon come to nothing, that that grain will be gone, garments will be full of holes, and pretty soon that gold and silver will not even be redeemable. You know, it's a bit surprising in this practical epistle that James brings up wealthy people, affluent people because it's no secret in the first century church, throughout church, for, over the countless uh, millenniums, that the churches have been poor, made up of poor people, few assets. But not everyone, even in the first century church, uh, was poor. In chapter 4, he calls these presumptuous businessmen, you remember, that are going to work, say, we're going to make a profit. We're going to, go to this city, and then all of this stuff's going to happen because we're, we've, we've determined that'll happen. He says, no, you're not, not if God doesn't will it. And now he's saying to those who are fluent and lead he says, your sins have found you out, and your wealth is going to be tarnished, and now they're going to testify against you, and ultimately that wealth that you have brought or hoarded up will be of no value. Listen to me today, church. You know the problem with money? Oftentimes it has a tendency to... To give us a false sense of security. Listen, when we get in a financial position that we can travel, when we can indulge ourselves, and uh, we able to buy a second home, and and pretty soon we're going on cruises, vacations, and every desired destination that comes into our mind. Oftentimes, I'm just telling you because I've seen it. It can take a toll on your spiritual life as well, because it's just the way Paul wrote to Timothy: the love of money, uh, uh, is is the root of all kinds of evil. And he says many have wandered away from the faith because of it, and they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. And he's saying here this can be futile, the futility of riches. Now he moves in the text to talk about not the futility but the future. He says, uh, using a metaphor here for those affluent abusers, he says they fatten themselves into the days of slaughter. It's a picture of a rancher who fattens his steers. It's going to pretty soon take him to the sale barn and, and auction them off. And he says that's going to be the end game for this kind of behavior. It's a vivid picture of judgment. Those who've trusted in money and materialism, been absorbed in self-indulgence because of their greed, the lust for more, the pursuit of financial gain. He's saying one day I'm telling you there's a payday someday. Not surprising, the Bible says we're not to love the world, neither the things that are of the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes are proud of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God does what? He and she live forever. I know you'll remember Andrew Carnegie. remembered as one of the great entrepreneurs in uh, American history one of the most wealthy men of his day. He wrote, I was born in poverty and would not exchange its sacred memories with the richest millionaire son who ever lived. What does he know of a mother and father? They're perhaps names to him. Give me a boy whose mother is a seamstress, a nurse, a washerwoman, a cook, a teacher, an angel and a saint, all in one, whose father is a guide, exemplary, and a friend. These are the ones born to the best fortune some, think, some people think poverty is a dreadful burden and that wealth leads to happiness but what do they know they only know one side of it but i've lived in both worlds and i know there's very little in wealth that can add anything to a person's happiness it simply is not so and the, and the god and god's word gives us throughout it a warning against those things Next, let's move. Not only a warning, he tells us about awaiting in verses 7 and 8. Therefore be patient, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit? You also need to be patient, establish your hearts, for now the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we await the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The return of our Savior And it will be just as He promised in John 14, 3. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I am there you may be also. So here we're told first to be patient. Be patient. You know, we're told countless times throughout the Bible that we're called to be patient people. Long-suffering, self-control. But I'm telling you, it is an elusive virtue for many of us. But we all do believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, and certainly as we look around our world and all the happenings that we've seen, we have to conclude that surely these are the last days. However, we still do not need to obsess, but to be patient. We've seen what can happen with groups of people who begin to obsess over the return of Christ, and and, and declaring they found that last missing piece of the puzzle and, 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 and that Jesus is going to be here in a particular date or any given moment. And, and, and I, I, some of you will remember uh, back in 1988, a guy named Edgar Wisnet, uh published a little booklet called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. And uh, he actually sold 4.5 million of those little books He declared, now this guy is a man of reputation, a NASA engineer, eschatologist. He said on Rosh Hashanah, September 11 through 13, the rapture of the church will happen. As we know, 1988, September 11 through 13, it didn't happen. But guess what Wizenedat did? Well, he recalculated things again. He said, well, it's going to be in 1989, and then 1993, and then 1994. But the man who said, I will stake my life on these predictions proved to be only a speculation of the Lord's return. You know, I I think it's pretty clear in the Bible, no man knows the hour or the day when Jesus will return. Only the Father who is in heaven, Jesus says. But I think we could all agree this. Indeed, we have never been closer than we are today. Amen. Let's be patient. But he didn't quit there. It's not enough to be patient. He says, you've got to be peaceful as well, verse 9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you won't be judged, for the judge is standing at the door. So he portrays here the picture of Jesus as the judge. He's standing at the door of the courtroom, convening his court, knowing these first century Christians were going through various trials and opposition, and it was quite evident that there was some disputing going on still, arguing, grumbling, personal attacks. And he says, look, we've got to keep the peace. We got to quit arguing. Let's quit making accusations against each other. Here's what I know, and you know it as well. The best way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. You know what the Bible says, let's do all things without grumbling or complaining, Philippians 2.14. Romans 12.18, live at peace with all men as much as possible. But you know, one of my life verses is really the antidote of disputes in the church, where Paul writes to the church at Philippi that's going through some some strife and and problems of unity, and he says, look, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but And lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Quit being so self-absorbed, he says. Let's think about others, and let's give them preference over our own selfish self. Here's what I know. By fighting, you will never get enough. But in giving in, you always get more than you expected. Be patient, be peaceful, but he doesn't quit there. He said, we gotta be persevering as well. He refers to the prophets who endure suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured, he said. And then he brings up Job who persevered. And, uh, uh, and he tells us here, the, the Lord is still, he's a compassionate God, he's a merciful God. So now he's telling us in light of the Lord's return, Don't give in, don't give up, and don't give out. Be faithful and fruitful, endure, and do not grow weary in doing well. Job is an example of one who persevered. We know his story, don't we? The tremendous loss of his home, his family, his fortune, his future. And through this personal pain and affliction, even his own wife said, hey, Job, just curse God and die. But he refused to do that. And God blessed him with goodness and restoration of all of his grievous losses. So here we are, July 5, 2020. And I would say most believers are looking and considering and living in anticipation of Christ's return. And I would be quick to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. However, until that promised day, You and I are to live with patience. We're to live as well with peacefulness. We're to be pursuing and persevering in the simple and saving commands of our God that we may one day say with the Apostle Paul, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand, but I fought the good fight. I finished the race, I kept the faith. And now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, to all of you who long for his appearing. We're waiting. We have this warning. We can't be obsessed with money and materialism. We got to guard our hearts. All what we acquire one day will be left behind. There's a futility in riches, future of riches that will soon be passed on. The waiting is patience, peacefulness, perseverance and I quit with this not only a warning and a waiting but now in verse 12 we see our witness above all my brethren do not swear either by heaven or earth or any other oath but let your yes be yes your no be no lest you fall into judgment he says above all but here's what that really means especially this know this don't be swearing by heaven and earth or don't take any oath but just live in such a way that your yes is good enough or your no is good enough. And so much of this epistle is about the significance of our words and uh, the use and abuse of our tongue. So once again, he borrows from the Sermon on the Mount, which he does oftentimes in the book of James and almost says uh, a verbatim of what Jesus said relative to letting your yes be yes and your no be no. So in this discourse on judgment, he reminds us in chapter two, any partiality, unfair treatment of judging people by outward appearance is indeed unacceptable. And then he concludes with this robust admonition that how our word ought to be enough because we're people of our word. We're people with character. We're people of integrity. We can be trusted. So if we tell somebody, look, our word's good, it's good. Our yes is good. Our no is good because our testimony is tried and true. So judgment is coming for every man. Now for us who have trusted Jesus Christ with our life, of course, our sins were atoned for 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary when Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, took upon him all of our sins, past, present, and future, and vicariously, uniquely, substitutionarily died in our place. The Bible says, now he who knew no sin became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in him. What did Paul say in Romans 5? When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man wouldn't die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Who? For who? For us. And much more, having been justified by his blood, now we are saved. Get this, from the wrath to come. All right, let's give the Lord a hand on that. Man, that's the good news of the gospel. He has taken the wrath of our sin and our judgment fell on him. We, however, are still accountable to God. You know what the Bible says? Let judgment begin with the house of God. It's what Peter wrote. Well, when's this going to happen? Well, let me tell you, it's called, the Bible calls it uniquely the judgment seat of Christ. You know about it. called the Bema in the Greek language. And we're going to be really judged on how we lived our life since we gave our heart to Christ, the new life that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, our Lord. How did we serve God? How did we serve others? And our good works will be rewarded. And all of those things we've done in futility will not pass muster. It said we, we will be tested by fire. And those kind of things, even every idle word the Bible says, will be scrutinized. At the judgment seat of Christ, we give an account of ourselves and our works will be tested by fire. I'm going to give an account. You're going to give an account. Let's labor that we might hear that we had works that passed the test. That we did some good things. We, we, we weighed what was out there in the world and we chose Jesus over all the world had to offer and when we stand before him, we could hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. There's another judgment. I quit with this, this. This message about over. And that's called the Great White Throne Judgment. John the Revelator told about it in Revelation chapter 20. It's for the unbelieving dead, those who would be standing before God in unbelief, They've rejected the gospel, and now they will pay this recompense. In verse 12, it says, John says, I saw the dead, some great and small standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, which were written in the books, plural. And anyone who is not found in the book singular, the book of life, was then cast into the lake of fire. You see, when you and I give our hearts to Jesus Christ, we discover our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, let me tell you, that is our ticket to heaven. That's who goes to heaven. And those who reject Jesus Christ, who die in unbelief, they will stand and they will take the punishment for their sins. But God's grace will cover everyone who will but believe. I'm asking you today, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Or is all these evil deeds that you've done over a lifetime just collectively written in the books that you one day will give an account for? And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I tell you, God's a gracious God. He's merciful. That's what James says here. But he also is a just God. And we can rely on his justice being real, just as his grace and mercy are real. Thank you for trusting in him, for clinging to the mercy tree, and having your sins forgiven you bow your heads with me today. I know I'm speaking to mostly those who are confident of their salvation, but you may be listening and watching online today as well as here in the sanctuary and you really never have gotten it. You've read the Bible stories, you've come to church, You've been involved in Bible study groups and stuff, but your heart has never been transformed. It's hardened, and it's become indifferent to the truth of the simple gospel. If I'm speaking to you today, why don't you get up and out of your sin? Our God is long-suffering. He's patient to us. We're not willing that any perish but all come to repentance. Why don't you repent, believe on Jesus and get saved, give your heart to Him. For others of you who make any kind of objective evaluation of your life, there's there's so much you know you need to do and be doing and you're acting in a unbecoming way for the body and the bride of Christ and God's convicted you of that. Why don't you get up and out of your sin today? Because God is waiting and saying, come. If you're weary and heavy laden, you can find rest for your soul. My yoke will be easy. My burden will be light. You come. Come home today. Some of you may be here looking for a church home. And we'd love to have you here at Connection Point. Seeking to build the kingdom of God through committed believers in Jesus Christ who will love God and serve God in this local church. Father, I do pray today in all earnestness for those that I've sought to make appeal to today because the broad scope of all of it has been everyone. Spiritually, we're in one place or the other. As Jesus said, he who's not for us is against us. And I pray today, if we can't declare we're with you, that there would be a sense of conviction, a desire to get things right. God, help us. I pray for those that are dealing with personal sorrow and heartache who've been so absorbed and consumed by their troubles, problems, that there's no joy in their life. God restore unto them the joy of their salvation come visit us afresh Holy Spirit of God I pray for those today who are concerned about family matters some of your family dealing with physical hurts and serious dangers others may be alienated from family members that you love and don't know how to get back to a good place. God, I pray that you'd help. So help us today. I would pray this in earnest, all of us. We all need you. We confess we need you every hour. Be honored in your church. Our heart's prayer today, in Jesus' name, amen.